Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is Antiwar News for Tuesday, August 16th, 2022. We got a ton of stuff for you today. The top story at Antiwar.com. One year after the Taliban takeover, the U.S. refuses to release Afghan funds. So Monday marked one year since the Taliban entered Kabul and the now defunct U.S.-backed Afghan government officially collapsed. Since U.S. troops left Afghanistan, the U.S. completed the withdrawal on August 30th, 2021. Since then, there's been drastically less violence in the country, but Afghans are now facing a dire humanitarian crisis that is being exacerbated by U.S. sanctions and Washington's seizure of Afghan central bank funds. The Wall Street Journal reported on Monday that the Biden administration has decided not to release any of the $7 billion in Afghan central bank reserves that are held in the U.S. as millions of Afghans are facing starvation. The administration also suspended talks with the Taliban on the funds. They were holding talks. They held talks in Doha recently with the Taliban about these central bank reserves that the U.S. seized after the Afghan government that it used to support collapsed. So U.S. officials said that the administration made this decision over the recent operation against al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri. So Zawahiri, President Biden recently announced that a CIA drone strike killed Zawahiri in Kabul, although the U.S. has no DNA evidence that it was Zawahiri who was killed. It's not totally confirmed that it was that the U.S. took out Zawahiri. The Taliban said that a drone strike took place, but they haven't confirmed that Zawahiri was the target. But in any case, the U.S. is saying that since Zawahiri was in Kabul, it violates the Doha Agreement, which paved the way for the U.S. withdrawal. That was signed by the Trump administration back in February 2020. And under that Agreement, the Taliban said that they wouldn't let, you know, al-Qaeda gain a foothold in Afghanistan. So the U.S. is saying that they violated it. Let's cut off talks, even though Afghans are facing a really dire situation. I mean, the numbers that the U.N. is putting out, it's absolutely horrific. And earlier this year, President Biden said that he would make half of the $7 billion in Afghan central bank reserves available for families of 9-11 victims, even though you know, Afghanistan, the people of Afghanistan had nothing to do with the attacks on September 11th. And they're just punishing them for something they had nothing to do with. He said that the other half of the funds would be made available. They would set up a trust fund to be used for humanitarian aid for Afghanistan or to get it to Afghan Afghans in a way that kind of circumvents the Taliban. But now they're not doing that. Those options are off the table, and none of these funds are going to be used to help Afghans, according to the Wall Street Journal. So the UN has warned that a staggering 95% of Afghans are not getting enough to eat, and that nearly one half of the population is facing acute hunger. A UN official said in March that the situation threatens an entire generation of Afghans. Now, on top of the frozen central bank reserves, the U.S. still maintains sanctions on the Taliban. Since the Taliban is who runs the Afghan government now, the sanctions discourage 
international banks and businesses from making transactions with Afghanistan, from doing business at all with Afghanistan. And that's just making the situation even worse. Back in June, there was an earthquake in Afghanistan that killed over 1,000 people. And the UN said that U.S. sanctions were hampering the relief effort. They said it was complicating humanitarian aid deliveries in Afghanistan because it was controlled by the Taliban and that the international banking uh, system was basically being overcautious. You know, as we've gone over plenty of times on this show, U.S. sanctions always technically have exemptions for humanitarian goods, for medicine, for food. But because of the sanctions, companies, they just don't want to do business at all with the nations that are targeted. And it causes shortages of those things, no matter if there's exemptions or not. And history tells us this. So they know what they're doing. They know that this policy of keeping this money from Afghanistan and keeping the sanctions on is just going to you know, make this situation worse. It's going to starve more Afghans to death than would die if the sanctions were lifted. Um, so it's just really a cruel policy. Uh, the next story that we have up here is from Middle East Eye, and it's basically just about how Afghans are now struggling with serious poverty after the withdrawal, how the fighting has stopped, but now they're just dealing with not having money. And also, you know, there's been a bad drought in Afghanistan that has made everything worse. Um, so things just aren't working out there. It doesn't seem like they can catch a break. Uh, so the next one, Russian-backed officials say Ukraine launched strikes on Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. A Moscow-installed official in the Russian-controlled Ukrainian oblast of Zaporizhia on Monday accused Ukraine of shelling the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant and areas around the plant. This is according to the Russian news agency TASS. The official said that Ukraine launched 25 strikes using U.S.-provided M777 howitzers and that some hit the nuclear power plant and others hit the city, you know, areas around the plant. Now, this claim hasn't been confirmed, but we've seen this power plant come under frequent shelling in recent weeks, and Ukraine is accusing Russia of doing the shelling, but the plant and the territory around it have been controlled by Russian forces since March. So it gives Moscow little reason to attack the facility. It's usually hard to know what's going on on the ground in Ukraine. Both sides are always making conflicting claims. Uh, so I'm usually very careful not to take Russia's word or, you know, just take their their word of, of what's happening. Um, but in this situation, I think it's pretty clear that Ukraine is the one that's been doing the shelling here. And we've seen uh, Russia has been calling for the International Atomic Energy Agency to send inspectors to this plant. And a UN spokesman said on Monday that the UN has the capability to support an IAEA delegation to the plant. The UN spokesman said that they can do it from Kiev, um, which would mean they would travel from the Ukrainian capital through Ukrainian controlled territory and the front lines of the war to this plant. And uh, a, an official in the Russian foreign ministry said, you know, warned that that would be very dangerous. Um, it, it's not clear if Russia would object to that plan. I mean, they've been calling for this delegation to happen. It, it's not clear if they would uh, not want them to travel through Ukraine. I don't really see what the issue would be there. Probably would be dangerous because they're going through front lines. But 
Russia has also proposed uh, that they would give security to any IAEA inspectors traveling to the plant. And just for geographic purposes, the nuclear power plant, it is on the Dnieper River, which runs through Ukraine. And on the side that the power plant is on, it's all Russian controlled. They pretty much control that whole oblast of Zaporizhia. And on the other side of the river, it's Ukrainian controlled. So it's kind of a natural area for there to be shelling. And also, you know, Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, he, the other day, he threatened to target Russian soldiers that he said were either attacking the nuclear power plant or launching attacks from it. So that kind of tells me that you know, Ukraine has been uh, launching these attacks on the plant. But it's a very dangerous situation. And the U.S. has been kind of quiet about it. I mean, they've been calling for Russia to give up the plant. Um, but the, the kind of the fact that they haven't really come out and blamed, or at least I haven't seen it. I might be missing something. But I haven't really seen them kind of strongly come out and say, Russia's been bombing this plant. That tells me something, too, that um, you know they might not be sure. And if this, this claim is true from these Russian installed officials in Zaporizhia, that they're using U.S. provided howitzers to do this, I mean, that is really something you think the U.S. would have to uh, address. Um, okay, so the next one here, Ukrainians are receiving infantry training in the U.K. Hundreds of Ukrainians are receiving this training as the British have pledged to train up to 10,000 Ukrainian troops within 120 days. That's a lot of training uh, that's going on inside the UK. Uh, the Ukrainians are being put through a condensed version of the British Army's infantry, infantry training that lasts a few weeks. The program includes marksmanship training, battlefield first aid, house clearing, and other... It's They're preparing for urban warfare, so it's that type of training. The first first batch of Ukrainians arrived for this training last month in July, and some of them have already returned back to Ukraine, so it's a very short program. And this effort is part of the UK's military aid to Ukraine, which so so far has totaled $2.8 billion since Russia launched its invasion on fe February 24th. The US is by far and away the top contributor of military aid to Ukraine, just in weapons alone, just in weapons that they're shipping to Ukraine they've sent over $9 billion in arms. And they're also supporting Ukraine with what they call budgetary aid. They've given them $8.5 billion in that. That's just, here you go, Ukrainian government. Here's all this money to pay for pensions and government services and healthcare. Um, and they've also, you know, the humanitarian aid and other things. But the U.S. is the top contributor by far. And other countries have pledged to help the effort to train Ukrainians inside the UK, including New Zealand, Canada, the Netherlands, and the Nordic nations. New Zealand announced Monday that it plans to send 120 troops to Britain to assist the training. So that's an example of a country outside of you know NATO and the EU helping this war effort. Um, and the training, it really shows, you know, the West's deep involvement in this war. And we've seen the UK and uh, and the US and NATO just do really doubling down, tripling down on their support for Ukraine, pledging it. They're going to they, they're planning to support Ukraine in the long term. It's just a sign that this war is not going to end anytime soon, unfortunately. 
Uh, this next one is about Austria. Uh, I thought this was interesting. I saw this in Al Jazeera today that Austria is committed to military neutrality despite the war in Ukraine because Finland and Sweden have moved to join NATO and they were two historically neutral countries. Finland was neutral through the Cold War. Sweden has been had a policy of neutrality since the 1800s and that policy prevented the country from being destroyed like the rest of Europe during the world wars. So they're moving away from that. And Austria, you know, Austria is an EU nation. So they're in on the sanctions against Russia. So they're not totally neutral, but that's why I said they're committed to military neutrality. They haven't sent weapons to Ukraine. They've sent humanitarian aid and, you know, helmets and what they call non-lethal military aid, things like that. Um, but according to this Al Jazeera report, 80% of Austrians support military neutrality and not joining NATO. And this view is shared across the political spectrum in Austria. And since Russia invaded Ukraine, and we've see, seen Sweden and Finland moving to join NATO, and that conversation of changing their policy of neutrality is happening, Austrian politicians have made clear that NATO membership is not even up for discussion so I thought that was just an interesting uh, thing to highlight. After World War II, you know, Austria was taken by the Nazis, uh, you know, so it was destroyed during World War II. And after the war in, 1990, in 1955, um, it became independent. Before then, it was occupied by allied countries, the U.S. and the Soviet Union, too. But it was granted independence in 1955, declared its neutrality, and throughout the Cold War, it was sort of a buffer between the West and the Soviet Union. And that's just something they want to stick to. This next one, this is a study from scientists at Rutgers University that found in a modern nuclear war, 5 billion people could die. And this is the worst case scenario in their study. This is a full-scale war between the U.S. and Russia. And it's the worst possible case, but it just shows what could potentially happen. And this is such a high death rate. It's not just, it's not the blasts. It's not the radiation. It's all the soot that would be sent up into the atmosphere and would really block out the sun and create a nuclear winter and crops wouldn't be able to grow. So worst case scenario, 5 billion people could die it's just horrific and it really shows there's a quote from one of the researchers who says you know this tells us one thing that we must prevent a nuclear war from ever happening and now we're at a point in where you know we see the un officials some western officials a lot of russian officials warning that the risk of nuclear war is higher now than it's ever been and this is what we could potentially deal with but if you want to you know read more about the horrors of what nuclear war could be scott horton our editorial director just put out a great book uh hotter than the sun and it's a collection of interviews he's done with nuclear experts in the field including daniel ellsberg there's this one interview he did with ellsberg i think it was in 2019 is my guess where he was just talking about u.s submarines with trident nuclear missiles on them just if one of them dumps its payload how billions could die because of the fallout and because of the soot that goes up in the atmosphere i mean it's really terrifying to think about 
Okay, so the next one, China starts more military drills in response to latest congressional delegation to Taiwan. So the Chinese military, the People's Liberation Army, the PLA, they announced fresh drills around Taiwan on Monday in response to a congressional delegation, which arrived in Taiwan on Sunday, just 12 days after Nancy Pelosi made her provocative visit. So the Taiwanese defense ministry said they detected five PLA vessels in the area and 30 PLA aircraft, including 15 that crossed the median line, which separates the Taiwan Strait, the two sides. It's an unofficial barrier that China has typically avoided crossing over the past few decades, but that's changed since Pelosi made her trip. A consequence of that visit is now we've seen, I think it's been every day, China sent warplanes across that line. So this congressional delegation was led by Senator Ed Markey, Democrat from Massachusetts. And one of the most interesting, alarming things that I saw out of the reports of their trip is that they met with Taiwanese lawmakers and one in the Taiwanese uh, legislature of the Democratic Progressive Party, the DPP, that's the party of President Tsai Ing-wen, said that the congressional delegation the American lawmakers asked the Taiwanese lawmakers how they felt about the U.S. policy of strategic ambiguity and if they would like to see it change to strategic clarity. Strategic ambiguity means the U.S. won't say one way or the other if it would intervene in the event of a Chinese attack on Taiwan, but some hawks in Washington want to change that. They want to give Taiwan a war guarantee, and that would really raise tensions with China, and that could make China you know, make a move. Um, whether, you know, we don't know exactly what that could be, but it, it's not clear how these Taiwanese lawmakers responded to that question. But the fact that they're talking about this with the Taiwanese government, because the whole idea of strategic ambiguity, it tells Taiwan, don't move too close to independence because you're not sure if we have your back if China invades. And it tells China, you know, don't invade because we might intervene, but we might not. It's amb ambiguity. And if it turns to that strategic clarity, the more separatist-minded, the independence-minded party, DPP and Tsai Ing-wen, could take more steps in that direction, knowing that the U.S. is going to intervene. And that intervention might not necessarily be direct intervention. You know, they could change this policy to say, okay, China invades, we're going to commit X amount of dollars to military aid to Taiwan, or and we're going to sanction the hell out of China. Or something like that. It doesn't necessarily mean direct military conflict, but we'll see. Uh, but it's not good. It, it's just a bad situation that the U.S. is just going to keep escalating. Uh, so the next one here, the CIA and Mike Pompeo are sued for allegedly spying on U.S. attorneys and journalists who met with Julian Assange. So this is from Kevin Gastola. He's the great... He's a great reporter, one of the best sources on the Assange stuff. A group of journalists and lawyers who visited Assange while he was held up in the Ecuadorian embassy in the UK has sued the CIA and Mike Pompeo, who was the CIA director at the time that they visited Assange and were spied on. Now, they were spied on by a private security company in Spain, and there's a lot of evidence that shows he was probably working for the CIA. He said he shared audio and video footage from the embassy with American intelligence. Hasn't said specifically it was the CIA, but it was most likely the CIA. 
And so this comes as right now, the, the situation with Assange, he's still in Belmarsh Prison in London. The British Home Secretary has signed off on his extradition to the U.S., where he will be tried for, uh, he's indicted on the Espionage Act, and what he's being charged for is doing journalism. He's It's over the WikiLeaks releases that he re received from Chelsea Manning, the Iraq and Afghanistan war logs, and uh, his team is appealing the extradition. So that's where the, the case is at. So this might help. You know, because if the U.S. government, the one that's trying to extradite him and put him in jail for life for 175 years, was spying on him, I mean, how could they extradite him? But, you know, the British, they know, there's no way that they don't know what has gone on here. Um, but hopefully this could help the situation. Okay, the next one here, U.S., this is from Connor Freeman at the Libertarian Institute. So we've seen the EU propose this final draft deal of the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA. It was pr proposed by Joseph Burrell, the EU's foreign policy chief. And Iran, the EU has said, this is it. This is the final text. Can't change it. That's that. Iran has disputed that idea and said that there's a few issues that remain with it. And then the U.S. has come back and said that they refuse to negotiate any further. They're accusing Iran of making extraneous demands. And so it doesn't, things aren't really looking good here. We're not exactly sure what Iran's issues are, but the U.S. is just saying, you know, that they're not willing to negotiate any further. Um, so it's just not clear exactly what's going to happen. We'll probably find out this week. And the next one here, this is from Connor Freeman. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. This is from Kyle Anzalone and Will Porter, also at the Libertarian Institute. And it's about a report about UN peacekeepers in the Democratic Republic of, Con of Congo um, that were sexually abusing people in the Congo while they were deployed there. It's uh, a pretty horrific story. Um, and then the last one here, there was a drone attack on the U.S. base at El Tamf. That's in southern Syria along the Iraq and Jordan border. Um, there was no damage. There were no casualties, but it's just another attack. We see it, occasional attacks on U.S. bases in Syria. And really, the U.S. presence in that country serves as a tripwire for a conflict with uh, a few parties. I mean, this is this could be really anybody that launches these drones. There's plenty of people opposed to the U.S. presence in the region, whether it's ISIS or any kind of anybody affiliated with the Syrian government or and just anybody that's not happy that the U.S. is there. And then there's also always the risk of sparking a war with Russia because Russia, Syria is Russia's ally. Um, it's just a dangerous situation. And of course, it puts the U.S. troops at risk just being there. Uh, but that's it for today. That was a lot of stuff. I hope I didn't blow through it too quick, but I just want to try to keep this short and sweet. Uh, we have a lot of good viewpoints as always. One good one from Ted Snyder, just about the history about how, you know, the U.S. and just people knew that NATO expansion in Eastern Europe could lead to the situation that we have found ourselves in now. History that they want us to forget. 
but that's it for today. Uh, you can contact the show, news at antiwar.com. Follow me on Twitter. You can support the show, antiwar.com slash donate. Sign up for our newsletters, antiwar.com slash newsletters. And that's it. I will see you guys tomorrow. Thank you.